Welcome to Built to Go, a van live podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This time it's episode 136, and we're going to talk about the advantages of a big van versus a small van. That is, which are you going to be happier with, and which should you start out in? We're also going to talk about the powerful tool that will help you figure out your gas mileage, the trip odometer, a tale from the road that's not mine, but is something we need to talk about, and a product review of the new tires I got that, well, we're going to talk about because I like them. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. Thanks for being here with me. You might be able to hear in the background of this recording some sounds, and that's because I am deep in the woods of Illinois. Uh, No, you know where I am. I'm on the river, of course, and it's very nice out, and the cicadas are singing to me. By the way, that sound that cicadas make, it's actually them rubbing their penises on their exoskeletons. So, uh, yeah, think about that the next time you're in the woods. Anyway, we're not here to talk about entomology. We're here to talk about vans. And a listener by the name of Josh contacted me and said, hey, Jeff, why don't you do an episode about the advantages of a small van over a large van and vice versa, since you've had both. And I thought that was an excellent idea. So Josh, this one is for you and thank you for the suggestion. So my history with van life of late, my history of van life goes back a long time, but the first van I built out myself was a Nissan MV200, a very small van. And then I sold that, and I am still perpetually forever working on an ambulance that was or is a Mercedes-Benz Sprinter. Quite different vehicles. An NV200 is the size of a car. It's really not any different than a car. It's, It's basically a minivan, although it isn't a minivan. It's a tiny little cargo van. And a lot of people use them for van life. Uh, And a lot of professional companies used to build out NV200s, but they don't make them anymore in North America. So they're kind of going away. And the Sprinter is, of course, the Sprinter. The official van of van life, which isn't true at all. But it has become true enough that people, some people anyway, think of all vans as Sprinters. Oh, what kind of a Sprinter is that? Um... It's a Ford Transit. Oh, I didn't know Ford made Sprinters. Yeah, I've seen that conversation. Anyway, I'm going to start with the big van because the big van is simpler to understand in this context. Big vans are better at one thing, and that is space. Big vans give you more space, and this is not an earth-shattering revelation. But what might be an earth-shattering revelation is... That's about the only thing they do better. Now, there are some other things, and we'll talk about that, but the big difference, the important difference, is space. Yeah, I've got tons of space in my Sprinter. To me, moving from the NV200 to the Sprinter was like moving out of a studio apartment into a mansion. I mean, I've got storage bins I don't know what to do with. I've got, I can stand up. (laughs) I mean, What? You can stand up in your van? I mean, there's no comparison on space. And that space just isn't on the inside. It's on the outside, too. Suddenly, I have this big roof, and I can fit on a lot more solar panels. I ended up putting 300 watts of solar rather than just the 200 watts I had on the NV200. And you can do a lot more than that. That's just what I decided to do. 
And I have a Max Air fan up there, which I couldn't fit in the NV200 because the solar panels took up too much space. Here's a thing that isn't obvious until you start doing this. Your van becomes like your center of operations for your campsite and you kind of hang out around the van. So how big the van is kind of increases your footprint. So right now I'm in the Tiki Bago, the 1972 Winnebago that somebody did like a Tiki Shack that I'm in right at the moment. And it is the base of operations for this place. But this big awning comes out and it's just a comfortable place to be outside in a way that an NV200 couldn't be. Now I don't have an awning on my Sprinter, but if I did, wow, that would be a lot better place to hang out than the NV200. So while space is the only thing that big vans do better, it's a big deal. And it's just something that you can't really compensate for. If you do get a smaller van, you are always going to be trying to find more space. Every nook and cranny will be filled with something. But in a bigger van, depending on your lifestyle, you'll find you have space for a whole lot more. I am really enjoying having that space right now. Now there's a couple other benefits for a big van too. One is you're gonna get better ground clearance. You're gonna be able to do a bit more off-roading in even a regular Sprinter than you would be in an NV200 because even though the NV200 is six inches ground clearance, which isn't terrible, it doesn't compare to the rear wheel drive Sprinter that can just power over rocks and stuff, even just the two wheel drive version. And that, you know, that varies by what model you have. If, but for example, the Mercedes Metris, which is kind of the only midsize van. And if you haven't heard the news, they're going to stop selling them in the US. It has terrible ground clearance, even though it's bigger than an NV200, it's only got four inches of ground clearance, which is, which is horrendous. So it's just a minor thing, something that's not so minor and something that I have been using a lot more often than I anticipated is towing capacity. My run of the mill sprinter, I mean, it was an ambulance, but it's just a sprinter 2,500. It's, it's not anything fancy. Uh, it can tow 5,000 pounds, and while that's not a huge amount as far as towing goes, it's enough that I don't have to worry about anything at U-Haul. I can basically go to U-Haul and get whatever I want and tow it around. And that has come in super handy a few times. In the NV200, the tow rating was zero. You were not supposed to tow anything with it, and that's partially because of the type of transmission it had, which is a CVT transmission. And CVTs, while I think are decent transmissions for gas mileage and comfort of driving, are terrible for towing. So if you want to tow, you want to avoid a transmission with a CVT. Now, I towed with my NV200 anyway. I towed very light loads. It was fine. But you get my point. Now, you're probably wondering having just talked about the big vans, why I am saying there's fewer things they're good at than the small vans. And it's because I use my van as a daily driver. I, I'm not a full timer. I'm not living in my van and I'm certainly not spending all my time out in the great West where there's tons of space. I'm in Chicago. And from my perspective, a smaller van has a whole lot of advantages over a bigger van. For example, my NV200 was six feet tall, which is a little bit tall. I actually did hit the roof of a parking garage in Chicago with it, but I could get in a parking garage. I mean, this is one of the secrets of van life is that there are times where you want to be able to park in a parking garage. I mean, 
people don't look for van life people in parking garages. If you need an emergency place to spend the night that's kind of safe, a parking garage might not be a bad place to look. I could go in there with my NV200. I could go to drive-thrus. Basically, I could go anywhere because it was the same size as a car. And the Sprinter, yeah, not so much. Now, I've got the Sprinter 144, which is about the size of a parking space. It's about the maximum size of a parking space. So I'm able to park basically any place that has a parking lot without any trouble. And on the street with limited success, but, but that's it. Any idea of a parking garage is completely gone, and I can get into maybe one out of every 20 drive throughs So I have learned to use the mobile apps to order food and have them bring the food to me <laughs> rather than use the drive throughs And everything is more expensive with the larger van. Insurance is more. Gas is more. Tires cost more, repairs cost more, even tolls cost more in some place because it's a different class of vehicle. Also, some roads and bridges you can't go over because it weighs too much. There's just all these restrictions added because the vehicle's bigger. And some of those aren't obvious. For example, I just mentioned last episode, maybe the episode before, about the tires and how hard it was for me to find a place that could put the tires on my van. And the NV200, that was nothing. I could go to any Jiffy Lube to get oil changes. I could go to any tire place and they wouldn't have any trouble at all. But in the Sprinter, that's a pain in the butt. Finding a repair place is much easier with the smaller vans. So... How do you make a decision? Which one do you want? Do you want to do a smaller van or a bigger van? Well, let's talk about something else you have to think about, which is building out your van. It's easier to build out, do you know which one I'm going to say? You ready? A bigger van. It's easier to build out a bigger van. Why? Because there's more space. You have more space to work around. You have more space to plan and you have more space to be imprecise. And a smaller van, your clearances have to be pretty near perfect. You have to be within millimeters in order to get things fit. The curved walls of the cargo compartment are going to matter a lot more. And if it's a low roof, which almost all smaller vans are, you have to think about things like if you sit on your bed, is your head going to hit the roof? things like that. You do not have these concerns as much in a bigger van. Now, in some cases, like my van is tall enough that it can be difficult to reach some things sometime. And if you're a shorter person, yeah, if you have the full size Ford Transit with the high, high roof, you're not gonna be able to touch the roof. So you've got some challenges there. But in general, I do think it's easier to build out a full sized van rather than a compact van. What really matters is what you want to do. Consider the lifestyle you're going to try to lead in your van. If you're going to do full timing, I am going to push you towards a larger van because you're going to want that space. That's what I found in my littler van. And I know people live in vans this small and, and cars smaller, right? You can live in anything. But for me, I found that after spending a couple of weeks in the NV200, I really wanted more space. It really started to get on my nerves that I had to take the bed down and put it up and every, and just move everything around all the time. And, oh, this suitcase I have to move into the passenger seat because there's no space for it when I'm sleeping. That just got really old. But if you're the kind of person who's going to be full-timing in a city and you're going to be, say, a student, 
at a smaller van is probably going to be better. And what's going to happen is you're just not going to spend that much time in it. You're going to sleep in it, maybe wash up a bit and stuff like that, but you're going to probably eat your meals outside of it. You're going to study outside of it. If you're in a city, you've always got a place to go where you can just grab your laptop and go do whatever. You don't have to be in the van as much. If you're off-roading out west and you're going to be in BLM land, well, you're going to be in the van all the time. So think about that. Anyway, there are no wrong or right answers. You can choose one and change your mind anytime you'd like. And I invite you to explore it all. You know, don't set limits on yourself unless you have to. And don't ever feel like you have a lesser van because it's smaller or bigger or gasoline or diesel or whatever. It's your van. It's an extension of you and you should love it. And no, really love that thing because it is you. It's taking care of you. It's a part of you. <laughs> and it's what's going to get you through life, literally. Tech Talk. Okay, some of you are going to think this is the stupidest Tech Talk ever. And others are going to be like, oh, that makes so much sense. Okay, what? we're going to talk about the trip odometer. I got to really back up here. There's new people who listen to the show who've never heard these terms before. I'm always going to define things. And if you're an expert and that annoys you, I'm sorry, but we have to do this, right? Odometer. What is an odometer? Well, that's the thing that keeps track of how many miles your vehicle has gone. And nearly all vehicles have what's called a trip odometer as well. Sometimes they have two. And this is another odometer, but you can reset it. You can never reset the official odometer because that's actually a legal document. If you mess with that, you actually have to do paperwork to account for the messing with it. For a trip odometer, you can just reset it anytime you want by pressing the button. Now, a lot of people use trip odometers to keep track of how many miles they do on a trip. Ha ha, that's where the name comes from. But probably a better purpose for it is to use it to help keep better track of your gas mileage especially if you're in an older van with a wonky fuel gauge. I saw someone recently who broke down. They didn't break down. They ran out of gas because their fuel gauge broke, and they didn't have any idea to tell how much fuel they had in the vehicle. And I thought to myself, well, yeah, you do. It's the trip odometer. You see, I always have used my trip odometer to keep track of how many miles I've driven since the last fill-up, and I always have a general idea of how far I can go. So I will trust my trip odometer more than the fuel gauge sometimes because fuel gauges can be tricked. They are not always accurate. Perfect example of that is when I got my smart car years ago, I picked it up at CarMax, which is where I bought it, and it had a full tank of gas. And I had to drive 15 miles home and I almost ran out of gas on the way home. And I thought to myself, man, this thing gets the worst gas mileage I've ever seen. But no, what had happened was the smart car was on a ramp on the truck that delivered it. It was kind of at an angle, and that messed up the fuel gauge. The fuel gauge thought it was full. And when the vehicle came back to level and I drove it off, it hadn't had enough readings yet to reset. See, your fuel gauge doesn't read real-time fuel. It takes an average of, depending on how it works, maybe a hundred fuel levels and averages them out. And that's to compensate for gasoline sloshing. In the old days, you could actually watch your fuel gauge go up and down as you went around the corners and stuff. And to counteract that, they've added this electronic averaging system, but you can trick it. <laughs> and that's what happened to me. If your fuel gauge is wonky and you don't trust it, 
figure out how far you can go on a tank of gas. For example, in my Sprinter, it's 400 miles. I can do 400 miles on a tank of diesel. So at 350, I'm looking for a gas station or a diesel station. We've talked about that a lot. And I think that's a good practice to get in for everybody. And if you have two trip odometers, which a lot of fancier vehicles do, you can use the second one to keep track of your oil. When was the last time you had an oil change? I found out that my NV200 did not have a service oil light, which a lot of vehicles do have. And I found that out after I'd gone about 10,000 miles. <laughs> I was a little late on uh, one of the oil changes, but it was synthetic oil and it was fine. There was no damage or anything, but still, that's another thing you can do. And even if you don't have a trip odometer, you can do what my dad used to do is just write down on a piece of paper that he kept in the door. Every time he filled up, how many gallons he'd got, what was the odometer reading, and from that you can figure out your stuff. One last thing about this, this is also a diagnostic tool because you can keep track of your mileage like this and if something changes, well, there's something up with your vehicle. And that's true even if your gas mileage goes up. Sometimes that can be indicative of something wrong. Just a little tip, I know a lot of you do this already, but if you haven't thought of this, your trip odometer actually can act like a second fuel gauge, and that can be super helpful sometimes. Tales from the road. Okay, this tale, like I said, isn't mine. This is a news story. It's been in the news lately. It's been all over social media. You've probably heard about it, but it, it does need to be talked about. So here's the story, and... For those of you in the know, this is the Walmart van fire story. It is a gruesome story. It is involves death, and if you're not into that, go ahead and skip ahead a few minutes, and I will not be upset about that. Here's the situation. 2019, a gentleman with a Dodge Caravan with his wife is in a Walmart parking lot doing a bit of overnight camping, which is completely legal and fine, and there's no problem with that. It's morning. He decides he wants a cup of coffee or whatever. I don't actually know what he was cooking. He takes the stove out of his van, sets it up on the curb, makes whatever he's making, and then puts the stove back in the van. So far, so good. You could argue you shouldn't be cooking outside your van in a Walmart parking lot, but whatever. He then does a smart thing, and he moves his van. It was parked on the outskirts, and he drives it closer to the front door and nestles in amongst other cars, thus eliminating his footprint as someone who spent the night, and now he is just another customer. As it happens, he pulled up next to another Dodge Caravan, so he blended right in. He goes into the store, he leaves his wife in the car. And then, minutes later, his wife starts to notice a smell and then smoke, and she realizes that their van is catching on fire because somehow, when he put the stove back in the van, it either didn't turn off or it was too hot. I don't really understand the details there, but it basically set their van on fire. Now, she tried desperately to put the fire out, but was unable to, and the fire spread. It spread all throughout that one Dodge Caravan and then into the next Dodge Caravan. And that's where this story turns particularly tragic, because in that other Dodge Caravan, there was a six-year-old and a nine-year-old asleep. And when that van caught on fire, they couldn't get out of the vehicle. One of them ended up dying, and the other one was permanently disfigured with burns. Horrible story. Terrible story. This was back in 2019. What had happened with the van with the kids in it is the mom had driven to Walmart and had just driven a long way with the kids and they were very sleepy and she thought, I'll just leave them in there for a minute as I run into the store and grab a few things. And while she was in the store, this fire happened. 2019, what happened? 
the police arrested the guy with the stove, the guy who put the stove in the back, and charged him with negligent fire starting, basically. I'm not sure what the right term was. And he actually served jail time. Served a few months in jail, lots of probation. He was punished for his actions. It was all negligence. This guy wasn't out to hurt anybody. He just did a stupid thing and people got hurt from it, and he paid for that. That's the end of the story, except that it isn't. Now... The mom who lost her kid and had another kid permanently disfigured from this fire has sued Walmart saying that it's their fault that this happened because they let people spend the night in Walmart. Obviously, you now see the connection between this story and van life. All of us have probably spent the night at Walmart. I mean, it's kind of like the rite of passage. You have to spend a night at Walmart or you're not a real van lifer. So there's been a lot of speculation about this, that Walmart's just going to say, that's it, no more overnight parking, and that's already happening across the country. And basically the thought is that this is going to be the final nail in that coffin. But nearly everybody I've talked to about this thinks it's ridiculous that Walmart is being sued because there were two negligent people in this story, the first of which was the guy with the stove who was actually convicted, and the second was the mom. Folks, you don't leave your kids in the car. You don't leave your kids in the van while you go into the store. You just don't. You're responsible for them. And sure, some nine-year-olds are mature enough that you could leave them in a vehicle, maybe. But it doesn't matter. If something happens, you as the parent are responsible. In fact, when this first happened, there was talk of charges being levied against the mom. And I don't know that that actually happened. But now it's a few years later and... I don't know if a lawyer contacted her or what, but now she's suing Walmart. I do not think she's going to be successful, but the way lawsuits work like this is that Walmart wants us to go away as soon as possible, and since they have big bucks, they will often come to a settlement. And it's possible that this mom will be happy to get a few tens of thousands of dollars, perhaps, and then that'll be the end of it, except that lawyers at Walmart now have to decide whether there is actually a problem with having people spend the night. So what does that mean for us? Well, we can't do much about whatever Walmart decides. They just might decide that's the end of it, and then we just have to abide by that. That's just how it is. But one thing we can do to help prevent this type of situation before is to pay attention to how we're doing our van life. Don't put your hot stove in the van. Uh, You know, that's one lesson we can take away from this. Also, Don't cook outside at Walmart. It's not a campground. It's a place to spend the night. And I will keep saying this until I'm blue in the face. If you're going to spend the night at Walmart, roll in late, roll out early, and don't do anything except sleep in your van. And yes, you should probably shop at that Walmart if you can. That is good etiquette. That's the kind of thing that's going to make Walmart happy to have people spend the night. So it's another tragic story in the news about van life. Uh, I feel terrible for this mom. I cannot imagine what she's going through, but I just can't see how Walmart could be culpable in this situation, especially given that the guy moved the van. I mean, if you think about it, he spent the night there and then moved the van. Well, he could have spent the night at the McDonald's next door and then moved the van. It would have been exactly the same situation 
but somehow Walmart wouldn't have been responsible for that? I mean, his act of spending the night there really didn't have anything to do with the incident, except that maybe it attracted him to that spot or something. I mean, lawyers are very clever. Anyway, if you have thoughts, uh, I'm happy to hear them. You can always leave notes on the podcast or in the Facebook group is where most of the chatter happens or in the Discord channel, or <laughs> you can tweet at me or send me something on Instagram and there's all these social medias that I have a hard time with. But you can always get a hold of me at jeff at builttogo.com. That's two T's, not three, not one. And I will get back to you as soon as I can. And if you have some interesting comments, I might share them next week. So anyway, kind of a bummer of a tale. Uh, and uh, it's one that I hope is never actually my tale. Product review. I really love these tires. <laughs> I, I lead a simple life. No, seriously, guys. I, the, I, it's impossible to do a good tire review in a podcast. Tires are very subjective. And in order to do a proper review of them, you've got to wear out a pair. And I'm nowhere near that. I've only had these things for like two weeks. But holy cow, what a difference it's made in my van. These tires that I'm talking about are the Nokian, that's like the phone, Nokia with an N at the end, Nokian Outpost, and they're AT tires, all-terrain. Nokian Outpost, they're a brand new tire, they've only been on the market about a year, and they have this really aggressive look. I mean, they look like, I'm gonna go eat the Rockies, kind of a look to them. But on the road, they handle like touring tires. My van is so much quieter now that I put these on and it's so much smoother. The ride, it, it, it eats bumps now. I don't know, guys. I just kind of love these tires. <laughs> they, they're super gnarly. They will totally work off road, but somehow they've got the balance perfect that they work equally well on pavement and they're not that expensive. They cost between 200 and 250 a piece, which if, you, if you've looked at AT tires, I mean like real AT tires, that's not bad. Again, I've had them for three weeks. Maybe they're going to be completely bald in six weeks. I don't think so. None of the reviews I've read have said that, but think about it. It's a new tire. So how many people have actually worn these out yet? I'm not thinking very many. That's my only concern is that these are unproven, untested tires, and it could be they're doing all these wonderful things at the expense of the rubber. Because if you make a really soft tire, yeah, it'll have these characteristics, but it'll also wear out very quickly. Now, I've had Nokian tires in the past. I used to have Nokian Hakapolitas on my Land Rover, and they were amazing tires. Nokian does weird things with rubber. They, they have rubber scientists, and the Nokian Hakapalitas were made out of a special rubber that wouldn't freeze. So I had the Land Rover in Vermont. It was 20 below zero, and having tires that didn't freeze. Did you know tires could freeze? Yeah, they do. Uh, that was a very good thing. And I don't know what magic they've worked with these, but I, I hope it's the kind of magic that will do all these wonderful things and also let the tires last for 30 or 40,000 miles. AT tires don't last that long in general because that gnarly tread tends to wear out quickly, but I'm very happy now. <laughs> That's all I can tell you. So if you are in the market for tires and you want to try some AT tires, but you're worried that they're going to be super loud or super harsh, take a look at the Nokian Outpost tires. They might just be that sweet spot. And if you're getting AT tires just for the aesthetic like, okay, you're not really going to go off-road all that much, but you want your vehicle to look mean, 
Yeah, these have you covered. The sidewalls actually have tread on them so that if you're in the mud, the sidewalls can help propel you through. This is a characteristic of AT tires, and these have that. So they have all the gnarly look in the world. I, I, I mean, I'm driving an ambulance with these gnarly tires. It, it is a little weird. In fact, the tire place commented saying, um, aren't those a little aggressive for your vehicle? And I said, uh, uh, oh, no, no, they're not. So anyway, that is the Nokian Outpost AT tire. I like them so far. If anything bad happens, I'll let you know. But I definitely think you should give them a look if you're in the market for tires. Resource recommendation. Okay, this is another weird one because that's how I am. I am taking a trip to Antarctica. I have mentioned this a few times because it's it's somewhat on my mind. And I'm going to Antarctica by way of Buenos Aires. Uh, I'm basically going to fly to Buenos Aires, and then I have to switch airports. And then I'm going to fly to Ushuaia, which is down at the very lower tip of South America, and then get on a boat and go to Antarctica. But I'm trying to do this in a way where I can avoid taxis and stuff as much as possible. I'm trying to find hotels where I can walk to, well, I can't walk to the airport, but I can walk to the boat. And I can walk to the ferry to Uruguay, which is something else I want to do. But, you know, I've never been to Argentina before. I've been to South America, but... So what? These are different countries. Things are different. I don't know that you can actually walk from point A to point B. So I decided to do it. And I did it with my VR headset. There's an app called Wander for the Oculus, now called MetaQuest. Uh, but it's basically just Google Street View. Now, you've probably seen Google Street View on your computer. It basically shows you a 3D or a 360-degree picture of wherever your address is. But in VR, you're actually there. I mean, if you've never tried one of these VR headsets, you don't maybe know what I mean. But when you put one of these things on, you are immersed in this. And Street View is immersive. And so I used it to actually walk from my hotel to the ferry station and from my hotel to the ship and from the ship back to the hotel and so on. And now I feel like I've been there. I even used it to explore the ship because somebody recorded a ship tour in VR and to explore Antarctica. And I now have a much better understanding of what I need to do. I know where the sidewalks are. I know what the neighborhood looks like. And it's just been a really useful thing. And so I pass this along as a resource to you that if you are curious about going to a place, check out Street View. But if you have a VR headset, do it that way because it seems to encode in your memory different and you really feel like you're there. And this can be a bad thing because I've done this before with other places. And what happens is that when I get there, I feel like I've already been there. And that's not really the sensation you want when you're traveling. You want something new. And I find myself comparing my memories of this place that I have never been to with how it really is. And it's this very unusual, unsettling situation to be in. And I'm not sure it's a good thing. So I think this is a useful research tool, but use it cautiously. You know, um, travel is about exploration and sometimes it's better to just experience it yourself. I mean, that's a big part of van life is experiential stuff. So, you know, if you're going to go to the Grand Canyon, yeah, maybe skip the VR stuff, you know, just kind of do the, the R stuff that is reality. 
Well, folks, thank you very much for listening to episode 136. Hey, if I seem distracted lately, it's because I'm doing another cruise, and you guys are certainly welcome to come. We're going to the Panama Canal. We're leaving from Miami. We're going to go to Grand Cayman and Cozumel, and then Cartagena, Colombia, and then we're going to go through the canal and hit up Costa Rica, Oaxaca, Mexico, and then finally end in L.A. It's going to take two weeks. On Serenade of the Seas, a very nice ship from Royal Caribbean. It's one of my favorite styles of ships they have. It's fairly affordable. You can do this for less than $2,000 a person. It's a great group of folks. I've traveled with them all over the world. So there's a couple of van lifers in there. If you're interested, there'll be a link in the show notes. But these trips are not van life unless you think of the ships as your own personal van, which I like to do. Music, as always, is by Simon Wagg. And until next time, remember the words of Albert Einstein, who said, Reality is merely an illusion albeit a very persistent one. <laughs>